for the reason I kneel before the Father from who every family in heaven and on earth derives his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he might straighten you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and may have powers together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurable more than we are ask or imagine according to his power that is work within us. To him be the glory and the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Dana, for praying. Thank you, ringers, for ringing. Thank you all for singing and gesticulating. I don't know if you uh, could hear or call forth the words to one of the melodies that the ringers were ringing. Uh, part of it goes this way. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Mission accomplished, at least with those who have led us in worship today. The Sunshine Ministry is a beloved feature of the community called Yates Baptist Church, and it's a long-standing community that has led us, taught us in so many ways. There are those who have dedicated themselves weekly, W-E-E-K-L-Y, not W-E-A-K, weekly, to being a part of that ministry and supporting both the meals, the, the teaching, the special opportunities. And I'm going off script long enough to say, if you are a, a volunteer with our Sunshine community, if you would stand so we could thank you for the ways that you have gone to work. Yeah. And included in that group uh, are Richard and Glenda Poindexter. Uh, as you know, Glenda is healing and at home. And Fred Carswell, uh, too, who is... Uh, not in today. Um, we would not be able to come into contact with the Sunshine community nearly as well or nearly as often without the faithful service of their group home leaders. Uh, for those who are uh, kind of managing different group homes, if you would stand so we express our love and our appreciation to you.
we might take for granted that sunshine happens uh, here on the campus at Yates. And frankly, in the way it's played out over time, probably 95% of our sunshine experience happens here. I have good news. Uh, annually, at, as we approach uh, Christmas, we call those who would like to go spread holiday and Christmas cheer through Christmas caroling to come to the church late in the season and we dispatch and we go to different places. Sometimes we go to memory care units. Sometimes we visit uh, some of our homebound member, uh, members. We've done all sorts of things. This year, we've gotten clearance to carol the group homes of the Durham uh, County Community Living Project. So we're going to go to Sunshine instead of Sunshine coming to us. So if that's something that's really special or a great idea for you, your household, uh, December 21st the Wednesday after sunshine adjourns for the year. We'll be going caroling at our friends' homes. So I'm looking forward to that. Karen has read for us an excerpt from the letter to the Ephesians. And that letter is a powerful letter in so many ways. The, the apostle, in many ways, extols the power of grace at work in the church for about three chapters. And then the balance of that letter talks about the response of God's people. So it's sort of, as, as one commentator said, it, it's a model of grace in, grace out. And as we follow that trajectory of grace in, grace out, it turns on this prayer that the apostle offers for the church. This prayer that Karen read for us, a prayer that in many ways contains more than we could completely understand, get our arms or our hearts around. I remember when I first heard this excerpt of Scripture, I was infatuated. I was just transfixed by that sense. I would love for you, says Paul, in my paraphrase, to know the height and the depth, the width and the breadth of the love of God. The God who later is praised as the one who gives immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine. That's some experience. That's some relationship. On this Sunday, we conclude the church year if we follow sort of the traditional cycle. Next, year, uh, next Sunday begins Advent, the new first Sunday of the Christian New Year, a season of anticipation and preparation for Christmas. In the 1920s, in pre-war, uh, pre-World War II, post-World War I, highly turbulent Europe, the Catholic Church uh, in, in, uh, introduced a concept called Christ the King Sunday, a festival to remember and acknowledge Jesus as Lord of all. And you got to think in that context just how powerful a statement of defiance that was as people were healing badly from one global conflict as the political forces were already at work to introduce a second, even more brutal, if it could be possible, global conflict. There cried the church, Jesus is Lord of all. 
calling on us, even when all of the evidence politically, socially, or otherwise is to the contrary, is that Christ is Lord. And that is the rallying point for the church. We just got past an election, a midterm election, I'll grant you. And I'm looking out and I see, you know, about 40% of you were pretty satisfied with the results. 40% of you are not. 20% of you are trying to figure out why you didn't take the time to go vote. But as we look together as the church to what sort of leadership we will incline our lives that will shape the way we live our lives out loud in the world. We cannot look first to the political sphere. We cannot look first outside of what happens right here and right now as we encounter the presence of the living Christ among us who is declared biblically as king. You heard Ted read that excerpt from Revelation. They are inscribed on his thigh, on his robe. Is this one who presents himself king of kings? And so we have to ask today, how is it that we will come to know this lordship? How will we come to know this leadership? What does it look like? What does it sound like? We might even ask, how does it feel? I think the prayer that the apostle offers us today gives us the insight that is required not to rely first on our senses or our instincts, but instead to listen deeply to what is happening from the inside out in our lives and in our church life. And so the apostle offers this word of prayer, and it gives us the first verb that I want to hang on to. I kneel. And that's simply a a way of saying, I am praying. In Greek, it's such a great little phrase. It says, "I, I bend my knees. I bend my knees, and I'm looking at some of you grimace like I do um, as one who had a knee reconstructed in high school. The idea of bending your knees is not pleasant. It's hard to get down. It's even harder to get back up. And sometimes there's the snap, crackle, and pop that we've come to expect in those times. But all of us can resonate with the incredible vulnerability that's projected in a posture like that. To get on your knees renders you defenseless. In many ways, it places you right where you are. You can't run forward, neither can you run back. And unless you're a Jedi, there's not a lot you can do even with your hands. Such is the posture of prayer that the apostle is putting in front of us today. But even more, it is an image of life before God. As uh, a friend of mine who, uh, he taught at NC State for years and taught the men's Bible study out in what they called the hut in a previous church, I think all churches that sort of went through the 50s had a hut. Out in the hut, he was talking one day about life with God and he was inter facing it with his love of gardening. And he said, I think gardening is the most profound and connected spiritual discipline I have. He says, because my hands are always dirty, 
and I'm always on my knees. That's an image that's stuck with me. This is not a new idea. The Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem was constructed deliberately with a very low door. Now, it's said that that was to keep crusaders from kind of going in there on their horses, but the effect of walking into that place of Jesus' advent and arrival in the world is everyone must bend low simply to find entry. It's a picture of humility. It's a picture that in many ways reflects the one who came to us. As the Apostle Paul sings in Philippians, though being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited, but humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the cross's death. To kneel is to embrace humility. The second word I want to hang on to is the word dwell. Now, in the prayer, this describes the activity of Jesus and his love inside our Christian lives. In the, uh, in the language of the prayer, it's dwelling in our hearts. Now, this is, of course, not an anatomical statement or declaration. In the Bible, the heart is viewed as the seat of our judgment, our morality, our decision-making. When we speak or act from the heart, we're not talking about our more modern-day sense of being like passionate and explosive and he's all heart, they might say. Instead, this is the sober, self-grounded sensibility It says, this is who I am at my core, and this is the value that I'm going to live out. That's what heart is about. That's why I've said from time to time, when uh, when Solomon is made king, his first prayer is to ask for a listening heart so that his judgment would be the judgment of God, his values would be the values of God of God, that his decisions would reflect God's will, so on and so forth. That Christ would dwell in your hearts means more than some sort of sentimental attachment to Jesus. It means that Christ and Christ's love now infiltrates all of your life, all of your decisions, all of your moral judgment, all of your discernment. That's where Christ is at work at your core. And you can tell those values. Sometimes when you perform a pop quiz, I remember very early in my time at Yates, in worship, I made sort of an offhand comment that I had noticed on my way here uh, from, the, from the Family Life Center that there was a bedroll and the uh, sort of the obvious litter of someone who had encamped underneath the the fire escape out here, those fire stairs. And I sort of made that comment. And then I said, and and we all know what to do. And it was so interesting. Beginning that day and in days to come, I saw people leaving little little cans of food, Uh, people leaving supplies to help 
whoever it was, that stranger who would disappear by the time worship began, to say, we, we've got a place here for you. Here's some food. Here's something to help you along the way. That was one of the reasons I loved when families moving forward, formerly the, the Interfaith Hospitality Network, would come into Yates. It brought out the very best, I think, for our congregation. You get 50, 70, 100 people across the week doing things like making beds and, and writing graffiti on the, the, the tablecloths from the children that would say, you're so welcome here. Each and every step, each and every gesture saying, we are preparing a place for you. You are welcome. Rest. You are safe. We know what it means to prepare a place to dwell. Maybe it's just the golden rule. We think about what it is that we would want or we would need, and we just put that out in the world. But that's one of the ways that I've seen Yates over and over again show up. And, and Pam, it's just a couple of weeks. We're bringing food to families moving forward again, aren't we? We've already filled up the roster. I'm not surprised. But when we talk about creating a place for the love of Christ to dwell, what might it take for us to do that? And in reverse, have you ever thought about dwelling with Christ as being that active a season of preparation on God's part? That you're not desperately knocking outside the door, just hoping and waiting to come in, but instead the door flung wide open that says, welcome, you're late. Come on in. I've prepared a place for you. That's a powerful statement of connection, of relationship. And that's affirmed by the next word I want to hang on to from this prayer, and that is the word to know that you might know the love of Christ. That you might know it. When I was in, in high school and in college, um, the foreign language that I studied was German. And one of the things that I found sort of vexing early on is that there are multiple verbs for the word to know, as it turns out. There, there's the sort of knowledge that we have that's fact-based. I know the names of the 50 states. Or, I know the names of all the bones in the body. That's, a, that's the sort of knowledge that resides up here. It's very important. I want my physicians to know the names of all the bones in the body. I want my postal carrier to know the names of all 50 states. But there's a different kind of knowledge that we all know. It's a, it's a more personal knowledge. It's a very different thing to say, I know Dustin, or I know Marty, that sort of knowledge is the knowledge of relationship that only comes from being close together, from sharing life together, sharing burdens, sharing joys. And as you grow closer together, the more and more you come to know them. It's one of the reasons I'm inviting you to go caroling to the DCCLP group homes. We only know in part what it is we can disclose here, but have we ever seen where our friends live? Do we even know where they're located in Durham? Do we know any of these things? No, that is mediated through relationship. 
the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, says, I want to know Christ. Not, I want to know about Christ. Give me more facts. There's more going on. Make those facts come alive in my life. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, so somehow attaining the resurrection of the dead. I want to know Christ, not simply so that I have the right answer to every question, but I want to know why he did what he did, and I want to know what it means to follow him, to be bonded to him, to be connected with him in the days of heartache and in my abiding hope. And it's an ongoing, unfolding experience of knowledge. Not that I have already obtained this, he says, or that I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press onward to the goal, to the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus an ongoing, growing relationship as we kneel, as we prepare in our own lives a place for him to dwell, as we welcome him in, and as we come to know him, really know him. And as we come to know him, we may be surprised at what we discover. One of the places that we look to take a cue for what it is Jesus embodied of God in the world is actually the prophetic word of Isaiah 42. And in that prophetic word, among other things, Isaiah says, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. That sounds like a king. But the way it comes about in the word pictures that Isaiah paints for us there, he portrays the way of God's servant as someone who keeps such a low profile that he could pass through all the marshes and even the reeds, even the weak ones, won't break off. There's no twig that'll snap. Even the draft that he might leave behind as he makes his way through is so gentle, it wouldn't even extinguish a smoldering wick. And as much as we want it perhaps differently, we find that Jesus shows us a God who chooses subtlety over swagger, whispering over shouting, persuasion over manipulation, gentleness, instead of brute force. And we wonder, is that someone worth following? Would we even recognize what he does as real leadership? I don't think that Jesus would make it out of the primaries these days. But it's a good time to remember that Isaiah also said that God's thoughts are not my thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. And so we come to know a king who does not impose, who does not micromanage, but is relentless in the pursuit of justice. 
And when we think about God bringing justice to the world, immediately we assume it's justice for us and it's punishment for others. But maybe instead, as we hold this prayer and as we hold the vision of Isaiah 42 together, we can find our place among the little smoldering wicks, our light faintly shining and struggling to stay burning, that in Christ our King, God chooses not to rain down wrath upon us or break us down, run us over, snap us in half, or snuff us out. Instead, in Christ, God is moving in and among us in a way that the bruised and smoldering lives that we live are not overrun. They're not extinguished. Instead, what makes Christ the King, what makes the reign of Christ durable, is that when we follow him, we see that God is the one who climbs on a cross and takes all the wrath and takes upon himself all the brokenness and pain and vulnerability and sin of this world into God's own life. And it is God who is the reed that breaks. It is God who is the wick that smolders and goes dark and goes cold with us and for us. And so to come to know what sort of reign Christ inaugurates, in order to understand what sort of king he might be, we need to see the mutual relational invitation for us. To make space in our lives, not first as serfs, pleading to some higher authority, but recognizing that God has shown us what it means to live in a world according to God. Kneel. All who humble themselves will be exalted, said Jesus. Dwell. I am the vine. You are the branches if anyone abides in me and I in them. They will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And no, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Amen. The invitation goes to all of you today as we open our hands, as we open our hearts, as we practice our generosity and make our offerings to offer that which you have withheld from God. The part that God already knows, but in order to know God, you have to find that you can trust God with that too. The call to Jesus, from Jesus to kneel and dwell and know is ours. And just how far we lean into that call, I think will tell us how far the reign of Christ extends over our lives and through our lives across the world. Let's pray and let's respond.